Chuck, we wanted to know, did Obi-Wan call you and tell you to take the trash out? That was awesome. Yes. <laughs> that has got to be an abuse of the Force. It, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yeah. Oh it's man! Imagine if if Obi Wan is a Force ghost was like just like Luke, feed my cats. Yeah, this... <laughs> Luke, can you read me peanuts from this latest paper? <laughs> <laughs> As a ghost, I cannot turn the pages. <laughs> Welcome to episode 41 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have a guest rogue. It's Brian Helmkamp. Hi, guys. Brian, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so very, very happy to be on the, the show today. Uh, my name is Brian Helmkamp. Uh, I work on a, a number of things in the, in the Ruby community. I've done some open source stuff. Uh, most recently, uh, I'm working on a product called Code Climate, uh, which uh, we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Uh, but uh, also help out uh, in the New York Ruby community organizing the NYCRB meetups and uh, Goruko. Goruko, not to be uh, confused with Gogoruko, right? Not to be confused with Gogoruko. Uh, we, we had the name first, uh, <laughs> which which I think Josh will, will admit to. Uh, and oh, we, sure. we yeah. authorized the, the licensing of the, the Gogoruko name. Uh, so we're, Wait, we're getting so is, is Gogoruko <laughs> basically the Lady Gaga of Gogoruko? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's apt. Yes. All right. Uh, all right. Also on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Uh, good morning. We also have David Brady. Estás usando este programa de traducción de forma incorrecta. Por favor, consulta el manual. We also have James Edward Gray. Wait, I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to see how long it would go. That, that, David, you do a great Stephen Colbert impersonation. Thank you. <laughs> And finally, we have uh, Josh Susser. I say finally, and then I, I have to introduce myself too. Anyway, I, I refuse to be finally. <laughs> I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> oh, we're gonna go down this road again, are we? <laughs> I think the word you're looking for here is penultimate. Yeah, and and finally, <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. Um, so this week we're talking about code metrics. Woohoo! So who's yeah. going to get us started? Talking about code metrics. Um, the, hey, Brian, how about a definition? Sure. <laughs> hey, right. He loves doing that. So you, bring the, you bring the guest on and then just uh, <laughs> team right up. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> stand I, I right here. Get the bus. Yeah. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> so, um, so software metrics uh, are you know data that can be derived from the code making up uh, a code base or an application, and they're they're sort of um, broad interpretations of of that, uh, and you know, more specifically, uh, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that we're going to spend some time talking about today is uh, what you would call static analysis, and that means uh, you know, metrics that you can derive without uh, having to actually execute the code, uh, the code in question. There are other metrics, um, like one that uh, a lot of people will be familiar with, like code coverage which actually requires running the code. So we'll talk probably, uh, uh, I would imagine, about both uh, static analysis and, and some things which are not static analysis. So uh, 
I'll, I'll confess that I'm like a code metric idiot. Uh, so I can offend even more people this episode than I did last people episode, which would be great. But uh, I, I guess I, I don't often find myself wishing for code metrics. Um, so I, I thought I'd give you a chance, Brian, to tell me why that's a dumb opinion and why I should be looking at them more often than I do. Oh, man. James Edward Gray asking you to tell him he's dumb. No, I'm serious. Go for it, big guy. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, But (laughs) uh, you know, I I think there uh, there's value uh, in looking at uh, you know the the work that you're producing from a a kind of detailed uh, and different angle than the way you're usually processing it. So if you're you know a professional uh, tennis player or or golfer. Uh, you know, you've got your game and, you know, you're still after a match, you're, you're going to look at a whole lot of different details about how you played under different scenarios. And I think for the experienced developer, uh, you know, code metrics can serve that role, you know, just kind of like a, uh, another way to maybe uncover some, some new ways of thinking about things or, or new ways to solve problems that might have been outside your, your normal thinking. I think an, another uh, big factor is if you're working with teams. So if you've got a team, then I think the most valuable part of uh, software metrics can be the discussion that it, that it prompts, basically. It's not that you know, any sort of automated uh, metric on a code base can replace the, the judgment of a, of a good developer, but uh, you know, sort of inspiring conversations about, you know, is there a different way that we can do this? Is you know, our new approach working out? Are we on track uh, uh, for the goals that we've set for ourselves as a team? Uh, I think that that can be a really helpful uh, use. Do you think it's wise to set a complexity goal for a team? I wouldn't say a com- uh, a, I wouldn't think it's wise to set a specific goal for any specific metric for a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you need to look at things sort of combined and take a, a view of the the full picture. Uh, and in that regard, uh, you know there there's some some ways to do that. But if you can say, all right, guys, you know, at this point, uh, we, you know, we have a few classes that we know are problematic. And, you know, I think we can get on a path to where we've, we've sort of fixed those up in a way where we're not scared of them anymore over the course of the next, you know, few months. Uh, And in the meantime, not introduce any new issues that start to sort of, you know, accumulate. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a little higher level than saying you, you never want to get into a place where you're optimizing for a number because that's going to cause you to make, uh, in, in some cases, decisions which are, are poorer than uh, you, know, you would make uh, without the, the metric because um, there's, there's so many things that need to be reconciled when you're, you're working on a piece of code in the real world. But I mm-hmm. think you can set high-level goals. Yeah, we, I, we, we don't see that in the real world like uh – gaming things for uh, unemployment numbers and what <laughs> I, have you I, I anyway a, anyway <laughs> i think that's just a brilliant answer brian it, it's i have i have worked on teams where we have have said we will get our code complexity to this number or, and we will get or even more common right as you see we will get our test coverage our c0 coverage or our c1 coverage we'll get it to this percentage and invariably once you say the number is the only way we're keeping score, you'll get some idiot who will sit down and he'll write a single test case that loads every file in the project, doesn't, you know, it, it, is, it 
makes no assertions in the code, but it, it loads everything and then just does assert true. And congratulations, we now have 100% C0 coverage, and this guy gets the employee of the month bonus. And <laughs> and he's actually made things worse, right? He's done right. absolutely nothing good. I, I like your answer of basically saying, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to put words in your mouth because I'm going to extend what you said here. It, it, sounds, it. it sounds like a good idea, what you're saying is a good idea, is to review these complexity metrics frequently with the team and say, what is this telling us, especially in conjunction with other pain spots or other areas that we know? Yeah, I think uh, I'm happy with those words being put in my mouth. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I really right. like the idea, too, of not just uh, talking about you know some of the symptoms of, of what we're doing, but uh, the way that it helps us identify some of the problem areas, which you kind of implied in what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm really comfortable with it as like conversation starters. I guess one of my concerns, did I mention I'm the hostile witness this time? Uh, one of my concerns <laughs> is uh, that like, I don't know, I, I really feel like you have to always filter it through a lens of, uh, you know, human common sensedness like for example i i gave a link i was playing with code climate this morning and i i gave a link to the rogues this morning of it at one point it told me that uh it, it flagged one of these classes of mine as red for having duplication um and it's a mailer with uh two methods in it and even the instance variable assignment is different and about the only duplication is that I you know call to mail you know and give the two and the subject which rails pretty much requires me to do you know so and then I duplicated one constant in the subject I guess so I mean but still there's a lot in there that's not duplicated and I was really surprised that it tip that flag and I hope that any human would look at that and say, no, that's okay. I mean like the method But the, like the parse lines. tree is probably is probably a duplicate. <laughs> that, that's yeah, right. Because yeah, yeah. I happen to know how that tool works and and uh, and the parse tree is probably a duplicate. And actually it's surprising the 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 duplication that that, that tool can bring up uh, which you just like never thought about before. Because you'll have a, a piece of code that's exactly like you said where the variable names are different. But the structure of the code is exactly the same. Yep, and we should we should give credit to the the tool uh, that you're referring to, Abdi, is is Flay in this case, uh, which is a very useful uh, tool. Runs on the command line. It's uh, created by uh, the the good folks out uh, in Seattle RB, and it looks at these uh, you know parses the code, looks at the parse trees, and compares them. Uh, and if they're identical, then, then, you know, if you look at the code, you're gonna say, okay, yeah, that's exactly the same code. Maybe it's formatted just a little bit differently. But th in this case, it's actually sort of ignoring the specific identifiers and the specific strings, uh, and just looking at the structure. So it's okay. It's an instance variable assignment followed by a method call with a hash argument. Uh, and then the hash arguments, uh, follow, follow this structure. So that, that's kind of what's going on there. I, uh, James, I, I totally uh, agree with you that in, in this case, you know, I think the the right judgment is this code is fine. Uh, it should be should be left alone, and uh, and that's where sort of the using metrics for good and not evil part comes in. And I've seen this go the wrong way, and it, it pains me deeply. Uh, you know, I had one case where uh, there was a couple controllers, and just by the nature of, you know, if you have very simple Rails RESTful controllers that are following conventions, 
you know, the, it, actually, the, the parsetry for almost the entire inner body of, of those controllers, at least to start when they're not doing anything fancy, could be uh, the same. Uh, and a tool like Flay or Code Climate, which actually builds on uh, a Flay, among other things, will say, okay, these, these controllers look like they're exactly the same. But the, the logical, or one logical uh, conclusion of that is, okay, you know what I need to bring out here is a base class and some meta programming and bring out like the, the chainsaws uh, to, to make sure that we're uh, removing the duplication there. But I think that yeah, th this is, that's where I get into using the word chafe uh, as the, uh, the extension of dry. Uh, you can dry things up to the point of being chafe, <laughs> and uh, and that is is not what uh, you know, not usually a, a good thing. So you gotta you gotta mm -hmm. interpret the results. Yeah. So so basically, the old chestnut about premature optimization applies. Yeah, in some form, I think. Yeah. Well, or or reductio absurdium, right? Or absurdum, that you can take you can take you Did can you take get drying. that from Harry Potter? No, no. Yeah, it's a, it's a spell. Yeah. <laughs> It's reductio ad absurdium, not reductio absurdium. <laughs> um, but uh, to take something to its logical conclusion to the point that it becomes ridiculous, right? I mean, you can, yeah, if you, basically, if you remove all duplication from your program, you have just b-zipped it. Exactly. And, and I think there's a, there's a great presentation uh, on this. Some of you may have caught. Uh, it's David Chalimsky. Uh, he's presenting at RubyConf. And the, the presentation was called Maintaining Balance While Reducing Duplication. Uh, and his sort of overriding point was that the dry principle sort of expanded actually means every piece of knowledge must have a single, unambiguous, authoritative representation within a system. It, it doesn't just mean don't repeat yourself. That's a simplification. So he goes to a great example where he has some, some code to generate URLs. And at the start, it looks like pretty sane Ruby code. But it does have, if you, you know, take a, a, a fine-grained look at it, some duplicated parts. And he goes through all these contortions of removing more and more duplication until eventually it's just like a whole bunch of you know, one-letter constants uh, <laughs> sort of all being mapped together and completely incomprehensible. Uh, so I definitely recommend that uh, presentation if you're sort of thinking through these ideas. All right. One thing that I wanted to point out was, again, with the duplication, um, I ran it on some code that I've been working on here or there, and uh, I happened to use uh, Rails Generate Scaffold a couple of times, and it picked up the duplication there as well, which I thought was interesting. And, and it kind of made me think, okay, so should I not be using Scaffold, or is this really okay, or you know, is there another solution that I should be thinking about? And uh, it, it really kind of started, I guess, started that conversation with myself. Yeah, it, it sounds like that's very similar to, uh, you know, the, the, the case that I've seen before where controllers sort of propose this, uh, this duplication question very uh, acutely. And I'm not sure if there's an answer. I mean, I think it's a, it's a question that every, uh, everyone needs to be reevaluating uh, as they add more and more of, uh, of these things. You know, why is it uh, seem duplicated? Uh, what uh, you know is it really a problem? Does it seem like if I'm fixing a bug here, I'm going to need to fix a bug there? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, sorry, Josh, I think you were going to say something. Uh, yeah, I think this comes back to uh, what I said about premature optimization. That if you're if you're optimizing to you know, reduce duplication in your code, uh, you, know, you can do that. But the point of say scaffolding isn't to reduce duplication and to have you know one thing that'll be that will be really uh, simple and compact uh, it's to give you a starting point to branch out and change things so it, it's 
it's actually kind of stupid to think about reducing the duplication in your scaffolding because uh, you know the, the the downside of drying things up is that you've now forced these two things to be the same and they can't go in different directions as easily. So I, yeah, you you need to focus on that stuff at the right time. I don't know if I'm making sense here. I've only had one cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's also a, a good argument to be made that like the like the entire nation notion of a framework is right I mean like you, you sit down with with rails and you know that you know your models are in app models your controllers are in app controllers your views are in app views and in a way that's duplication it's it's duplication of a mental model that you have in your head and what the file system is on disk. And if you open up a controller and it's got an index method and a view method and a delete method and a create method and a new method, that's duplication. But it's I hope I'm not repeating what Josh just said, but I mean it's 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 good duplication. It's it's you're basically <laughs> saying this is oh god I'm duplicating what Josh said, aren't I? <laughs> I'll just stop talking now. I have a flake complexity of 28. It's, yeah, sorry. So that, that brings up another uh, thing that, that we've kind of uh, talked about as far as code metrics go is, is complexity versus duplication. Um, and uh, I've seen it measured in a lot of different ways. I mean, um, I've seen it measured by just the cyclomatic complexity, which is the number of branches. I've seen um, complexity where it's the number of assignments and the number of branches or the number of conditions and the number of branches and all, all this kind of stuff. Um, what, which ones do you guys generally use and why? Well, uh, just looking at Code Climate here, I uh, happen to have a project open. I noticed in the listing itself, it uh, across the top, it has complexity. Uh, I, I assume that is cyclomatic complexity, right, Brian? Well, actually, that's... Uh the complexity number that it's basically flog scores. So oh, flog flat. is a companion to flay and, and does this sort of complexity analysis. Uh, at its core, it's closest to uh, what you'd call an ABC metric, which means a metric that combines uh, scores for assignments, branches, and conditions. And there's kind of a specific formula for working on that. But flog is actually sort of a modification of the ABC metric uh, done by uh, Ryan Davis, where it counts that stuff, and then also is Ruby aware. So it's going to uh, penalize you if you are using uh, eval uh, much heavier than it's going to penalize you for, for other things. So it's, it, uh, it will uh, not like your metaprogramming also. So all of that is sort of worked into this uh, metric, which is listed as complexity, and you can get it out of the, uh, the flog tool on the command line as well. And so then the next column is just M, which I think is methods, and then uh, C, uh, C over M, so I assume that's the uh, ratio of complexity to methods, right? That's right. And then uh, duplication uh, is the other metric uh, that are displayed there. Now, of course, when you click into something, you get an even more detailed breakdown. But I was just saying that, that as a high level, that's what code climate shows. Yeah, I, I like the the aggregated, you know, the aggregated metric. Uh, you can go with a something like a, you know, a simple McCabe's complexity, uh, cyclomatic complexity, uh, and there's a tool called Psycuro. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, that that does that for Ruby, uh, and it's just straight up what's the cyclomatic complexity of these different uh, code units. But um, because there's so much other stuff that can be going on in Ruby code, uh, rather than 
you know, looking at that and needing to sort of factor in those those other things in the form of other metrics, I like the aggregated view that that flog scores give you, uh, and you can sort of have this internal rubric in your head around okay, you know, everyone has different comfort levels with how big a method can be, and this is something that I think is fascinating, just like the different um, worldviews on like what is a complex method, and you you definitely have cases where one person's complex method is another person's, uh, you know, beautiful, uh, beautifully factored uh, uh, method, uh, but you can sort of whatever it is, you can create your own internal rubric for what a what a reasonable fog score is for your project. I think that's interesting point too is that. A lot of people try and come out and they try and say, well, you should only have a cyclomatic complexity of X and you should only have, you know, another score metric of Y. And really what it comes down to is um, depending on the project, the problem and the team or person that's working on it, you know, those numbers can definitely change. And so mm-hmm. I, I would caution the, the listener to... Um, take any metrics that people are giving you as far as where you should be with a certain grain of salt and just make sure that you you understand uh, how that uh, how that fits with what you're working on yeah Brian have you used Rudy I have used it a little bit but not consistently my my experience with that is that it really drives up against what Chuck was just saying is that uh, Rudy's a great tool but it's very opinionated it, it's it's almost like it's almost like metric-driven development. It, it's meant to be run against your code repeatedly, and and it has opinions. You know, it will come back and it say it will it will tell you this method is more than twenty-five lines long. Fail. It's too long. Shorten it. And I, I that kind of gets up in my grill a little bit. That you know, I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm smarter than you, tool. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and you know do code my own way. But but I also find that if you the like the motivation to have very short methods in some styles of programming, for lack of a better word, we'll call them bad styles. Um, long methods are great. Um, they're you know there's there's a reason for them. And if you're if you're doing object oriented programming badly, if, but I mean if you're if you're not really on board with like uh, uh, software decomposition where you start at a high level and and break things down and break things down and break things down. But if you're starting at a composition level and you're starting with the tiny little bricks and building your way up. It's very easy to create these long methods, especially when you start trying to compose things together. And when you, if you just blindly adhere to this twenty-five methods, you end up with really stupid methods um, and 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 really bad. You end up, you know, kind of cutting the meat not between the fat and the meat, but you know, you cut crossways. And I, I, I'm making a really bad metaphor out of this. I, I guess I'm making a metaphor yeah. hamb- hamburger. But but the <laughs> the, the, the 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 point is, is that. Um, with with Rudy, I found that doing software composition, it led me to a bad design almost invariably. Um, I'm curious to know is I haven't tried this with software decomposition and with a top down approach. Are you have you used any of this as like a method of driving development and uh, and 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 succeeded in in and having it yield and drive a good design. Yeah, so I, I just want to uh, first. I think there's a really good word uh, in there that I want to call out and plug a pattern, which you use the word uh, composition a few times, mm-hmm. David. Uh-huh. Uh And I think uh, when you're talking about the you know the complexity of methods and sort of different people's preferences, you really need to uh, think about the composed method pattern, which is you know goes back to the Small Talk Best Practice Patterns book mm-hmm. by Kent Beck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the key that he outlines in composed method is not uh, about its size. It's about 
is the uh, you know are is the is all the code within the method at the same level of abstraction? Yes. So you know you're sort of want uh, this this flow where you have this these higher level methods where you're not going back and forth between sort of very specific details and high level concepts. It sort of breaks down in, in this composition. So I just wanted to yeah. plug uh, the composed uh, composed method pattern there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so that, that's a great segue to. To my question, which is, uh, when I when I look at the you know these metrics and I see oh hey there's some duplication in this file it's it's just sort of throwing a red flag on it, but there's no real uh, suggestion about what's the solution to it. And of course you know I'm a I'm a highly skilled software engineer, so I can often figure that out for myself. But uh, you know isn't that kind of the point of an automated tool to to lead you in the in the direction to improving the situation, uh, well, maybe it's not. The, the, uh, but the, uh, the but what I'm wondering is, you know, are there metrics that are particularly useful for? Uh, you know, I, I actually have the you know Kent's book in my hand, and I was looking through this at, uh, oh, what are the kinds of refactorings that this book is suggesting, and are there, and are there ways to to do the metrics that will say, oh well, you know, these, uh, you know, you know, this code really needs, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, delegation applied to it because, you know, you're, you're, uh, or maybe you didn't, you need to do more, less inheritance and more composition. Is it, is it, you know, have you seen anything with metrics that can be uh, that high level enough to be able to be useful there? Well, I, I think that it's it's very much a trade-off, uh, and and David got to this a little bit earlier. That y you have these metrics that you can apply across a code base, things that are true of any system, uh, you know, like complexity, right? What's the total complexity of a class? However, you want to measure that, or methods, and then you can go sort of into details, uh, and that uh, you know sounds a, a bit more like what what Rudy does, where it sort of tries to figure out. Okay, it looks like you've got a you know an object design issue here, where you just have maybe too many methods in this class, or uh, you know too many instance variables. Is, I guess uh, is one that's uh, probably a good example. Uh, and so there's there's a tension kind of between uh, how good a tool can be, uh, and the more detailed it is, the harder it is to make good recommendations uh, versus sort of staying at the, the high level and then you know the programmer uh, sort of needs to apply their their judgment to figure out how to, to resolve the things uh, and you know I think you don't want to get too far into the weeds of sort of looking for I, I don't think it's truly possible for a automated tool to you know go too far down the road of making design recommendations um, one thing I like to, to point out is a smell, a code smell. Uh, we haven't used that that term on the the podcast yet, but um, you know, if you think about what a code smell is, uh, it's not that it's a specific problem in and of itself. It's a pointer that says maybe there's something going on here. Uh, you know, I guess a smell is not necessarily equivalent to a pile of poop, <laughs> unless you're working in David Brady's office. <laughs> And then so, it's still not true. A code smell is not necessarily equivalent to one pile of poop. So so one thing that I like about the code smell paradigm is not just that uh, it helps you identify problem areas. And, and not everything that looks like a code smell is a problem. 
but you know gen the general case it's generally true but the thing that I really like about it is that it's basically a way of recognizing a place where you can use a pattern to make your code better and uh, and that is a very very handy thing and uh, there's a tool it was written by uh, Kevin Rutherford I'm trying to remember what it's called uh, that that identifies code smells in your Ruby code uh Kevin's tool, I believe, is Reek. Reek, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's Reek, and uh, yeah. So it'll it'll go in and it'll identify uh, different code smells in your code, and uh, you know it, it's it's pretty handy. Um, in general, I, I like these tools too because most of them they give you some readout that at a glance you can kind of look through it and and uh, easily uh, either identify a problem area or dismiss uh, something that it's saying is a problem area you know, without spending too much time because we want to spend most of our time coding. We don't want to spend a ton of our time uh, sitting around and staring at these uh, readouts. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey Brian, I, I got a question about uh, programming style and metrics. Um, the, you know, Ruby is very flexible. There's ways to use it that are very strict object-oriented. There's uh, people who use it in very functional ways. People even write procedural code in it. Uh, do you find I that... I think a lot, a lot of people write procedural code in it without realizing it, but continue. Well, yeah. yeah I just to be clear, though, Josh thinks the functional people are wrong. I'm just saying that because I got more hate mail than he did last week. And I'm trying to even it up. You know, everybody jokes about hate mail. I never get hate mail. I've never gotten a single piece of hate mail. Oh, uh, you're show. asking for it now. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I, I was talking about Emacs last week, and I didn't get any hate mail. Yeah. I, uh, I, I obviously addressed it incorrectly because I got it. <laughs> okay. Well, the, so back to my point. Uh, the, so, so there's uh, different styles of programming. Are there different uh, ways of analyzing code that are more useful or less useful depending on differences in programming style? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. Uh, I think the you know the tools that we have in the the Ruby ecosystem right now are largely of the sort of object oriented uh, uh, you know paradigm and. I, I don't, uh, you know, haven't thought uh, very much about what that would look like in a, uh, you know, in a functional paradigm, for example. So that, I think that would be an interesting area to explore. I wonder what the the languages that are are, you know, more purely functional uh, do if they if they have any tools like this. I haven't seen any, um, but I also, uh, you know, I'm just not as familiar with those ecosystems. Well, well, I I, I could see that like one of the metrics in an object-oriented world uh, might be geared towards um, you know the law of Demeter or Demeter. Mm -hmm. I, I I really have no idea how to pronounce that word anymore. <laughs> but uh, okay, so so the LOD, um, the you know L, there might be a metric as they say, you know you are you know calling methods, you're sending messages to an object that isn't one of your arguments or one of your own one of your own uh, one of your own values uh, and that's a Demeter violation but in a functional language you totally want to be chaining call after call after call so disclaimer you know, not all chaining is a Demeter violation <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you your worship the, uh, uh, the, but anyway th those are distinct differences in, in programming style one of which is appropriate to an object oriented style and the other one for for functional and your metrics might be influenced by, by that sure then the functional language you could have something that warns you that you're accessing uh, a global variable and thus you're not writing in a functional style right yeah, sure. Yep. 
That, that raises a really good point. Are there tools out there for like detecting like immutability violations and that sort of thing that are not standard, like, you know, standard OO code smells? Yeah. It's called Haskell. <laughs> I yeah. think that stuff is usually done at the language language layer, right? Because yeah. it's just one of those uh, you know concurrency problems, which I, I haven't seen a, a perfect solution for. Which is how do you avoid um, you know accidental mutable uh, state? You really need to be down at a, a lower level to do that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let me try to redirect a little here. So it, if I want to get into tracking my code metrics and stuff, like. How do you guys go about that? Like, if you're just working on, you know, a little project with yourself or whatever, how do you get into the habit of checking those numbers all the time? Do you like set up a, a, a commit hook on your Git repo so that every time you commit, it spits out the flog number, or, or what do you guys do? James, that's a a beautiful uh, a tee up for code climate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't my intention, but yeah, that it, yeah, you're right. Go with it. Okay, so uh, you know this is one of the reasons why I wrote Code Climate, uh, and you know I've seen a lot of teams get started with code metrics and they sort of fall off the horse because it's something that uh, they need to implement, uh, you know, either on their CI server or in their local development environment. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, they get started with it and then something, some new version of some new gem is released three months later and it breaks and you know the team's really busy and there's just not enough time to fix it. So with Code Climate, uh, you can just connect it to your Git repository uh, on GitHub with a public key. Uh, it'll pull in your, your code. It'll run. Uh, there's a commit hook uh, through GitHub's push hook, so it'll uh, run on every commit. Uh, and then also it'll, it'll actually shoot out uh, emails as, uh, you know, as the code quality is changing. So you don't have to do anything uh, except just, uh, just check your inbox and it will let you know when, when there's uh, things to take a look at. Okay, I got a question. When, when it changes, is that climate change? <laughs> yes, but it's not anthropogenic. Sure it is. People are changing it. They change the code, they change the climate. No, 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 no. The code, the code, the code ecosystem is so big that there's no possible way humans could, could impact it. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. All right, sorry for bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> crickets, crickets, crickets. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I really like that idea. Um, one thing that we did when I was uh, at Public Engines, I was in charge of the CI uh, server, and <clears throat> so one of the jobs that I set up on Hudson was basically to run metric foo. And um, I don't know if anyone was really looking at it. <clears throat> I was. But uh, yeah, it would save. Yeah, it would incrementally save off the the changes and stuff and you could see the output and uh it was really kind of handy to be able to because every time you push it 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 pick it up so yep. you know same kind of thing so there's a uh play by play episode on peep code uh with Zed Shaw I believe and in it he kind of recreates one of the tools he used at one period of time and tracked religiously like uh at every commit he generated a bunch of stats as a as a commit hook I think and uh, some of the stats he did in there are things that we typically do not uh, look at uh, with all these tool metrics. Like, uh, for example, I, I know he was tracking bugs, and I, I can't remember exactly how he did that. If he ran the test suite and and checked to see if he, you know, they caught something he missed or or whatever. I'm just saying, are there other metrics we should be looking at too? And uh, in addition to just these, you know. Uh, like the complexity of our methods and stuff like that. Any thoughts on that? Zed's code is self-debugging. That's how he does it. 
yeah, so I think you know the the one takeaway in terms of how uh, people set things up that works well. It seems that like like everything else with developer tools, automation is a is a big key. So this you know the CI thing uh, works well. Uh, you know local post commit hooks work well. As far as you know other metrics, um, you know I think there's a project uh, out there called Limited Red, which I think is kind of interesting. Have any of you guys heard of this? Uh, it's by Joseph Wilk uh, of Cucumber fame. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly where he's at with it, but the idea is it keeps track of, for each uh, Cucumber feature file, although this same idea could apply be applied to any test framework, um, which tests are most likely to fail. Uh, so that could be uh, you know, an indicator of a lot of things. It could just be a brittle test. It could be that... Um, that area of the code has too many responsibilities. Uh, and so it can give you that information. And it can also, as a feedback loop, um, I believe it will optimize the order of your tests run so that it puts the ones which are most likely to fail first to try to give you uh, quicker feedback. So that, that just came to my mind in terms of um, you know, pretty different from the type of metrics we've been talking about previously. Uh, and it's not static analysis at that point because you're, you know, you're using the runtime result of the, of the tests. Uh, but uh, I think the idea of keeping track of, you know, test level data, how fast is this test um, over time is really interesting because when you end up with a slow test suite, the question is always, well, well when did it get slow? And there wasn't some day, <laughs> you know, but, but there are probably days where somebody introduces some before hook or setup code that maybe makes every test a little bit slower. Uh, and plotting that out would be, I think, really, really interesting. So, Brian, that actually led me to another question. Uh, I, I noticed that in the analysis code climate did of my uh, code today, uh, it did not say anything about my tests. Do we not measure complexity and stuff in tests, or why is that? Tests so, aren't code. <laughs> no, it's it's a good question. Uh, code climate doesn't do anything with tests right now, but that that's definitely on the uh, on the horizon, um, correlating the, the you know the breakdown of the test uh, information. Uh, at least what you can do with the static analysis initially um, with the uh, the information about the the code under test. So uh, you, you've hit a, uh, a roadmap uh, feature on the head there. I used to run code coverage tools in one, in Ruby 1.8. Um, I haven't had a lot of luck running any of the tools in Ruby 1.9. I'm curious what you guys are actually using. So the two that I've seen uh, are SimpleCov and CoverMe. Uh, although I haven't uh, actually gotten those uh, up and working and automated on a on a one nine project yet, I've had some good luck with SimpleCov. It it gets its eyes crossed a little bit if you do anything complicated, uh, but it's it is simple to set up and use. All right, you use that with Guard. Yeah. All right. Or you can you can use it with just put it in your RSpec suite. You know that you can uh, tell it to start coverage when you run your spec suite. Okay. Avdi, what was your question? Oh, um, we've talked some about like the the personal process with regard to uh, re responding to metrics. Uh, I'm just cu curious, uh, Brian, how you see metrics fitting into the typical agile software team um, approach, and you know, like how how does that how does that feed into the iteration um, or planning or or you know aspects of you know how does that how do you concretely apply that in your in your software team process? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think different teams have d different processes. Obviously, um, you know, some teams will do, uh, you know, the, the GitHub style sort of pull request system, 
and in that case, I think that that's a good time to uh, you know bring metrics into the conversation uh, for teams that are doing sort of a more um, you, you know uh, sort of extreme programming uh, approach where they're doing maybe pairing, no no sort of uh, formal code reviews where it's just sort of pairing, then master, and then out the door. Uh, then I think uh, you know retrospectives are uh, can be an interesting uh, time to sort of bring some of this stuff up. Obviously, you don't want to be talking about a bunch of super detailed technical stuff when you have um, you know the whole team, including non-technical folks, in there. But uh, one thing I've had luck with is setting up brown bag uh, brown bag lunches where we would do kind of like a group refactoring session. Uh, aided by metrics, so we, uh, you know, someone would say, "Hey, uh, you know, we'd have like a standing uh, brown bag lunch every few weeks, uh, and it would rotate around the team. Uh, someone would be responsible for sort of basically selecting a piece of code, not necessarily something that was even worked on recently. Uh, you know, they can incorporate metrics in that conversation, and then the goal for the brown bag session was to actually." Um, finish a uh, a refactoring of that uh, that code, however small it needs to be, uh, so that it's green and can be shipped immediately. And, and there were actually many cases where we didn't even get to the point where we had something that was um, uh, sort of green and ready to be shipped, and we just threw it out uh, because the the main uh, you know benefit of that exercise, I think, was the the conversation around it with with the, all of the engineers sort of working through uh, their own collective process about. You know what's going on here? Uh, how do we want to approach this problem? I really love that idea of you know 